0: You're listening to the Word of Life AG Podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us the next message in our worship sermon series with a message titled, The Posture of
1: Worship. Let's check it out. Good morning, Word of Life. Glad you're able to come and be a part of service today and spend your part of the weekend uh, with us. As already been mentioned today, we were able to host and be a part of Ava Wood's um, service both yesterday and also on Friday night for calling hours. Um, and even though, of course, as you can all imagine, it's extremely difficult for a lot of different reasons, um, there's a lot of people that are hurting, I'm glad that we were able to be a part of helping the family in any way we can. But I want to draw everyone's attention because I want to give some appreciation um, to the incredible numbers of volunteers people that gave up their time Friday night, Saturday morning, to come and be a part of that. So please, can we show some appreciation? Because this was important. It was important. And I know I'm able to speak on behalf of Megan. We were extremely... um, I think proud in the best possible sense of the church to see how everyone stepped up. So sincere thank you from us. Um, We are continuing today looking at our series on worship. This is now week four. Um, We're going to be continuing next week, which could likely be the last week. I guess we'll see how next week goes before we make that decision. Um, But this worship series, I've been very pleased with how it's gone, and it was born out of this, uh, this idea, and it was born out of this desire to look at worship as itself, because we have to acknowledge, and we have to be okay, and we have to surely recognize that worship is far much more than singing a few songs together on Sunday morning. That can't possibly be what worship is. That can't possibly be what the Bible talks about and what the Bible teaches about what worship is. And so we decided to, let's take some time, beginning of the year, let's start off the year strong and let's reestablish what having a strong culture and a strong focus on worship is. So I kicked us off week one, a number of weeks ago now, just laying out what is worship. The following week, we had a friend of ours from New Jersey, a lady that we ministered with, incredible leader, great worship leader. She was able to come up and share. Uh, Abby came up and talked about intimacy and communion. And then last week, Megan talked about the value of his presence. And I do have a question about that message. How come Megan was able to share an entire message about the Ark of the Covenant and not mention Indiana Jones one time? (laughs) She did, however, find a way to make a joke about me being old. Let me just say, I was away at winter retreat with a bunch of youth students and I did not feel old while I was playing volleyball with a group of teenagers. But the next day my back was killing me. (laughs) Anyway, churches like ours, we have a heritage and a tradition of being expressive in worship. And the hope is always that what is being expressed externally is what's being experienced internally. Our hope is always that as we gather together, our expression of worship is not a distraction to those around us, and it doesn't draw attention and pull attention to ourselves, but rather together as a unified community, we're all focused on our worship towards the only one that is worthy of worship. But we should consider our physical posture and our outward expression of worship. I do think it would be strange if we had an entire series on worship and we didn't consider the physical posture or the physical expression of worship. Our posture, our outward expression of worship is something we should consider, should have in mind. And indeed, the Bible has so much to say about the matter. And the first verse I'd like to share with you today is somewhat unexpected, but it sets the stage for the rest of where we're going. So I'm going to start off in Luke 18, verse 10. You can follow on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Two men went to the temple to pray. This is Jesus telling a parable. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers, I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now the Pharisee, the Pharisee's posture is one of self-congratulatory. It's proud, it's missing the mark, and it's surprising. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that the Pharisees are the bad guys. That's not the perspective that people had at this time. It was surprising that Jesus would have so many confrontations with the Pharisees. It's surprising that Jesus would have so many criticisms against the Pharisees. These were the people that everyone looked up to. These were the people that others would have looked to and said, these are the people that are doing religion right. They're the holy people. They're the people we should be listening to. I'm nowhere near as good as those people. Of course, as 21st century Americans, if we've read the New Testament, we know these are the bad guys. These are the ones that Jesus had the most criticisms against. That wasn't the perspective at the time. So it's also surprising when the humble tax collector, and it's the humble tax collector who's moved. It's the tax collector that's seeking God with a sincere heart. It's the tax collector that, in Jesus' parable, is the role model for you and I to imitate. This is the person who rips off his own people. This is the person who has betrayed their family, their community, their faith just to get rich. This is the person who joined up with the Roman Empire, the sworn enemy of the Jewish people. That's the role model. And why is that person the role model? This is the person we're all supposed to hate. Verse 13 again. The tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow saying, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. I don't know if there's a single follower of Jesus who doesn't identify with this sentiment. I don't deserve you. I'm disqualified from your goodness. I've completely messed up. But please, please show me mercy. This is a story in the Bible that I think about a lot. I don't want to unconsciously slip into the kind of mindset and the proud attitude that the Pharisee had, but I want to have the sincere and heartfelt approach that we see from the tax collector. Consider his posture. The tax collector stood at a distance, not even lifting his head, beating his chest in sorrow, and that matches what was in his heart. So as we consider today, the first thing I want to put to you is that external postures of worship should Represent and reinforce what's happening internally. External postures of worship should represent and reinforce what's happening internally. Firstly, our external posture as we worship, it represents what's happening internally. Our outward expression should be indicative of what's going on on the inside. It's possible, and I would even say easy, to go through the motions for the sake of motions. Whether it's weekly times of worship as we gather here together, or whether it's time of prayer or worship while we're alone. We should all want to avoid falling into just a dull routine, but I hope as a church we crave authentic worship that is truly representative of what's happening on the inside, what is truly representative of how God is ministering in our hearts. There are weeks where things have been difficult and challenging. That's going to prompt a different expression and a different posture than a week that's going great, and there's breakthrough, and there's open doors, and things are going well. You would expect and anticipate that our posture in worship would be different from one week to the other, depending on what is happening on the inside, depending on what God is doing in our lives in any given moment. It's representative of what's happening internally, and yet at the same time, it reinforces what's happening internally. There's a strange dynamic I want to consider with you. I don't believe that the answer to worship is to be fake or insincere, but we should consider that our outward expression, our posture, can reinforce what's happening internally. In moments of pain and sorrow, expressing worship can fan the tiny flame of hope so it spreads. When we feel beaten up by life, when we're not even sure if our faith is even mustard seed size, when the last thing we want to do is declare God's goodness, something can happen when we express worship. It can start to ignite the truth of who God is to reign in our heart. It can start to bring a perspective change. I don't think it's fake or shallow to decide that if our hearts are cold, that I'm going to physically express worship to adopt a posture of worship that can reinforce and build what's on the inside, that a physical posture of worship can help restore a true heart of worship towards God. And this interesting dynamic and interplay, it means that our hearts determine our posture And yet at the same time, our posture can affect our heart. External postures of worship should represent and reinforce what's happening internally. After spending this week going through the Bible and trying to research as best I could, there are six postures of worship that I want to consider in our time together today. The first I want to look at is to kneel or to bow. So six postures of worship. First one, kneeling or bowing, which is a sign and is indicative of being submitted There's a number of Hebrew words that describe worship and praise and sacrifice, and some of the most common words that you'll see in the Old Testament describe kneeling or bowing, the physical action, the physical posture of kneeling or bowing. The picture of why bowing or kneeling is significant, we can see this in human interactions. Now, being English, it means that I have a sense of royalty. When you bow before a king or queen, it's more than a gesture of respect, but you physically neutralize yourself as a threat. Now think about this with me, when you bow down before somebody, like you would do formally if you're meeting a king or a queen, you bow down, you're neutralizing yourself as a threat. If someone is kneeling in front of you, their eyes are down, their neck is exposed, and they're unable to maneuver weapons like a sword. A person bowing or kneeling is not a threat to a king. The posture is demonstrating I am not challenging you as king. To this day, people in power are under threat. I would even guess that there's no one more protected in the whole world than the president of the United States. A friend of mine is an Air Force veteran, and while he was in the service, the president came to the air base to do a 20-minute speech. For the sake of this 20-minute speech, it took days to clear the area and days to make sure that it was secure. For the sake of a 20-minute speech... Numbers of people were working around the clock for days to prepare because the president was coming. And this has always been the case because there's always someone that wishes to take the place of those in power. To kneel or bow before someone is acknowledging kingship. It's declaring, I am not trying to take your throne. I'm proving to you that I'm not trying to overthrow you by neutralizing myself as a threat and making myself vulnerable before you. That's the essence of the tradition of kneeling. To bow before God is to affirm His authority. You are king. You are powerful. You are Lord. I am not. You are enthroned on high. I am not. I am not challenging your place on the throne. I am not trying to claim power for myself. One of the most prevalent temptations people will face is to live as if they are sitting on the throne instead of God. I believe this has always been the case, but it's certainly apparent in 21st century America. Morality and ethics are all personal or self-determined rather than submitted to God. Our sense of provision and care is not from God, but rather by being a self-made man or woman. We get our sense of purpose and meaning from anywhere we can get it. And while we cannot possibly remove God from his throne, we can easily live like someone else is sat there. More often than not, we act like we should be the ones on the throne. But when we bow or kneel, we are expressing that we are not trying to remove God from his throne. Rather, our morality understanding of right and wrong is determined by him because he's on the throne. He is our provider and the one who protects me because no one is more powerful than him. My sense of meaning and purpose is decided by Him because He is the Lord of all and the Creator of heaven and earth. Amen. An important factor of submission, as demonstrated by kneeling or bowing, is a submission is accomplished willingly. It's not submission if it's under duress or facing a threat, but submission is freely given. This is an important story, uh, part of the story of Adam and Eve, that they were asked to stay away from one single tree. They were asked to willingly submit, to not eat the fruit of just that one tree. Now, if God would have placed barbed wire around the forbidden tree or made it impossible for them to eat the fruit, it wouldn't have any meaning or significance because it would not have required submission. But if you submit and resist doing something that is within your power and ability to do, that means something. If you have the opportunity and desire to do something, but you submit to the law or submit to your marriage vows or submit to an employment contract or submit to a commitment that you made, it's worth something. When we kneel or bow in worship as an expression of submission, it's because we have the freedom and opportunity to stand in defiance. And many people do so. But kneeling, bowing before God is affirming, you are on the throne and I'm okay with that. You're on the throne and that's where I want you. You have authority, you have power. I am not trying to take it for myself. Physically, if you kneel before somebody, neck is exposed, eyes are down, unable to maneuver weapons, they're at a disadvantage, can't move quickly because they're on their knees, they're not a threat. That posture teaches us something. That if we express worship through kneeling, bowing, that's what's going on. We are affirming, God, you are on high, and I'm okay with it. There is nothing you or I can do to knock God off his throne. But a parlor following Jesus is inviting him into that role, that he is Lord of my life. And this is something we do freely, and willingly. We submit to his lordship. We submit to his power, and his authority supersedes my own. His wisdom, his teaching matters more than anyone else's opinion. True submission is choosing to forego what I could do or even what I want to do so that I come under someone else's authority. Bowing or kneeling in worship is an expression of that. All right, second thing, second of six, six passes of worship. Number two, lifting hands, which is an indication of being surrendered. In our church, it's very common, and I would even say typical for someone to raise their hands during worship. And to be honest with you, I've only ever been a part of churches where lifting one's hands in worship is typical. I'm aware that there are many church traditions where this is not the case, but I don't want to go through with you because it's modelled for us as a physical expression of worship throughout the Bible. Starting First Timothy, I've got a few of these. In every place of worship, I want men to pray with holy hands lifted up to God, free from anger and controversy. Psalm sixty three. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. From 1 Kings, then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in front of the entire community of Israel. He lifted his hands toward heaven. Lamentations, let us lift our hearts and hands toward God in heaven. And why is this important? Why lift our hands? Simply put, it is the universal sign of surrender. If you go anywhere in the world, any country, anywhere on the planet, and someone puts a gun at you, Hands are up. Anywhere in the world, it's the universal sign of surrender. To raise one's hand, say, okay, not it. It is the universal sign of surrender. Now, the goal here is to not have people lifting their hands or waving their arms for the sake of having hands in the air. The hope is that we're a church that where we have resolved deep in our soul, I can't do this without you. I surrender. I give up. I'm giving up doing it my own way. I'm done trying to figure it all out. I surrender. I can't do it my own way. I can't do it myself. I can't figure out life without you. I surrender. The outward expression could very likely be lifting our hands in a worship, in a posture of surrender. It was somewhat eye-opening for me this past weekend. As I've already mentioned, I was at winter retreat with the students and having some conversations with some of the middle school boys and the high school boys, just listening to the pressure that they feel It's not something that I relate to as I dial back 20 years to when I was in high school. The weight these students feel like they have to carry, whether it's real or imagined, it's shocking. The answer is not to these students, just stick your hands in the air and everything will be okay. But the answer is, live surrendered to God. Your will be done, not my will. Your ways are higher than my ways you are stronger, greater, wiser, and better than me. And I admit that I can't do it without you. That is the answer. A month or so ago, I started inviting the LifeU students to come down, hang out in the front row during service. Come on, somebody. My hope... We didn't applaud the students. These guys are legends. <clears throat> My hope is that we build and teach and demonstrate such a strong worship culture in the youth and kids ministry that those of us who need three days of rest after one single game of volleyball will be inspired and challenged on having a surrendered heart of worship. Life Youth, you have permission to lead the way. You have permission to go all out to worship like there is no tomorrow, to worship like it is the greatest privilege on the planet to go all out and worship Jesus, fully surrendered to Him, and to teach us oldies what it looks like to worship wholeheartedly, to what it looks like to have a surrendered heart of worship. We need the next generation to rise up and be strong worshipers. We don't need people waving to thin air. We need people living with surrendered hearts to God. Can I please get a big amen? Come on, somebody. Third one. Six possible of worship, number three. Laying flat out to be Desperate. Now your Bible translation might say prostrate, or the New Living Translation, which is the Bible version I typically read from, says, fell face down. And it's essentially lying face down on the floor, and it's an expression of total desperation. This may well be a posture of worship that is more private and done quietly. It's typically not something that we would see on a Sunday morning during church service. But there are many examples of people having this posture of worship in the Scriptures. We see this from Abraham, Moses, Aaron, Joshua, Ruth, David, Ezekiel. And from what I can see as I've looked at these individual instances of people just being laid flat out, face down on the floor, is that it's always in the context of absolute, total desperation. We can see somewhat of a progression of what we've covered so far, to to bow or to kneel is to affirm the, the difference in status, that you are the king, and I'm not challenging that. We can see that to raise our hands is a sign of surrender, but then to be laying flat on the floor, face down in the mud, is a total act of desperation to kneel or surrender, is to show that I will not fight you. It's in essence saying, I, I could fight, I could try and defeat you, but I won't. Kneeling and surrendering are outward communication that I am not resisting, I'm not looking to defeat you. But to lay face down is different, because it's acknowledging that I've got nothing to lose. I've got nothing to lose, and I've got nothing to fight for, and I've got nothing to fight with. It's begging for some kind of relief. Now think about the physical image of someone lying on the floor. I was on two minds this morning whether I was going to do this, but I'm going to lie on the floor. Ah, uh, I don't know how clean the shoes of the worship team is. But honestly, you're lying on the floor. Face down. This is the posture of someone that's got nothing to lose. This is the posture. This is desperation. I've got nothing left. I'm out of ideas. I've got no escape route. I don't know what I'm gonna do tomorrow. I am complete and utterly desperate. God, if you don't help me, I can't help myself. I've got nowhere to go, nowhere to run, nowhere to turn. I've got nothing. This is a posture of absolute desperation. And we see it role modeled in the scriptures that that posture was adopted by Bible heroes. When life had got them to that point, I cannot do this without you. I've got nothing. Nowhere to turn. No ideas. No creative way to wrangle out of this. This is it. And in the same way that biblical heroes would find themselves so desperate, feeling alone, and totally unable to break free from their current circumstances, they throw themselves at the mercy of God because that's all they have left. Maybe you've been there. Maybe life has got you to that point where you don't see tomorrow ever coming. You don't see any glimpse of hope. And at that point, the posture of worship is right and appropriate and modeled for us in the scriptures to throw ourselves at the feet of Jesus. And in absolute desperation, I got nothing. I got nothing, nowhere to turn. I don't know what's next. I'm terrified. If it's not you, I don't know where we're going next. Fourth one, we doing okay so far? All right, six postures of worship. Number four, lifted head, a lifted head, which is a sign of being hopeful. A sign of being hopeful. Psalm three, verse three. But you, O Lord, are a shield for me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. Psalm 27. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies and all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. Psalm 123, I will lift my eyes to you, O God, enthroned in heaven. I've talked about it a number of times, so if you've been around the church for a while, you'll know that Megan and I spent a number of years living in New York City. Love New York City. If you're in New York and you keep your eyes down rather than up, what you see is dirty streets. If your eyes are down, you see stressed out people. If your eyes are down, it's crowded and expensive. The subway stations are gross. Rats are everywhere. Trash is all over the sidewalk. There are weird smells that are impossible to identify. But if you look up, you'll see skyscrapers, an amazing achievement of what's been built and created. If you look up, you'll see all these amazing historical features. All over the world, the Statue of Liberty is known. All over the world, the Empire State Building is known. You see the Brooklyn Bridge you see museums and libraries, you'll see all that Wall Street represents. You see Yankee Stadium, you see Broadway, you see Columbia Records recording studios where Bob Dylan recorded some of his best work. (laughs) So many things that make New York one of the greatest cities in the world. But if our eyes are down, it's rats and trash and weird smells. As much as I love New York City, and I do love New York City, It really is an illustration. It's just an illustration for us building a life of faith. We can keep our heads down. We can keep our heads low. And we can be consumed with the problems and the ugly reality of today. Or we can lift our eyes. We can lift our heads. And we can see that God is moving and working on a much larger canvas. A well-known verse that is always extremely encouraging. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes everything. Good. Good. Bad, neutral. God works everything, somehow, because he's unbelievable, because he's incredible. He causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. It's difficult to believe this if our eyes are fixed on ourselves, if our eyes are down. But by lifting our heads, we can start to see a new horizon. We can start to see that a new day is indeed coming. We can start to see how God is moving in the lives of others. We can start to understand how this season is part of a much bigger story. Maybe, just maybe, by lifting our heads, we feel we don't have to lay down anymore because that's all we can do, but we can get up with a sense of hope. Simply lifting our heads can represent and reinforce the cry for hope in our lives. Fifth one, six postures for worship. Number five, Dancing, dancing to be joyful. Now I have to let you know, I dance like a dizzy hippo ice skating. (laughs) And if you're wondering how long it came for me to come up with that analogy, it was real quick. (laughs) The saying, dance like nobody's watching. Well, when nobody's watching, I don't dance either. I uh, used to work in a coffee shop. This is a long time ago now, this before we had kids. I went with this young guy, and he was a uh, linguistics major at college. And after we worked together for a little while, he just sort of said to me, chit-chatting as we're kind of making coffees, he's like, Tom, you're not musical, are you? I was like, I don't know. Why? He said, well, it's the way you walk. (laughs) Uh, What does that mean? He said, well, it's, it's like, you know, the left half of your body wants to go one place, and the right half wants to go somewhere else, and... There's no rhythm, there's no grace, there's you know I'm worried you're gonna fall over a couple of times and so I don't dance very much. <laughs> but whenever I read about dancing in the Bible I automatically get a picture in my head of people so filled with joy that they cannot keep it quiet. They cannot keep it to themselves. They just have to express it. Last week, Megan spent quite a bit of time looking in the life of King David, where his joy was so deep that he couldn't stop dancing, even though others were saying he was embarrassing himself. Another moment that comes to my mind is, um, this is going like a long time now, but um, I was back when I was living in the UK, and my dad and I were in London for a weekend, My dad and I were in London. My dad found this church that he wanted to visit. And so we were in London. We go to visit this church. It was a large Baptist church. My dad really wanted to go and check it out. And so we go in and the pastor of the church was a man from Ghana in Africa. And consequently, a lot of the congregation were also from uh, Ghana that had come and been a part of the church. And so my dad and I were there having a wonderful service. It was awesome. And it turns out that Sunday they were taking up a special offering. And so, you know, I've been a part of church services where, you know, we've taken up special offerings and things. And the way they had it set up is that they were all going to bring their offering to the front of the church. I'm going to guess many of you have been a part of a church service like that, where you all kind of bring up and bring a special offering. I forget what it was that they were collecting for, but um, that was a Sunday we were a part of. And so the pastor kind of lets the church know that this is the day, and we're going to do this, and this is how we're going to take the offering. And then the music starts. And everybody gets up and starts dancing. And they start dancing their way to the front of the church. Now, I could not tell you I'm truly ignorant whether this is commonplace in Ghana or not, but it was fascinating to watch. And my dad just kind of turned to me, nudged me, and said, I've taken up a lot of offerings in my time, and nobody's ever danced once. (laughs) But that joy, that joy that you cannot keep to yourself. I want my worship, even though dancing is not my thing. I do want my worship to express the joy that I have. Though I may not be one to dance around, I do really hope that my worship expresses the joy that's on the inside. We're talking about representing and reinforcing what's in our heart. I have joy in my heart, and I want my worship to reflect that. Number six. Six postures of worship. Number six, be still. Be still. Be refreshed. Now, this one is, I would even say, underrated. Underrated. It may even appear to be contrary to everything else I've said today, but I couldn't ignore it. There's a reason and there's a time for dancing and kneeling and raising one's hands, but there's also a time for being quiet and being still. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. I shared this with the church before a little while ago, but I noticed a, a few years ago that I was constantly stimulating myself with information. You know, it's like any moment of silence I was filling with a podcast or music or something. You know, there was never just a lull. And I figured that that can't be the way to go through life. I mean, to just constantly have information coming at you. Like, that can't be the best way. And so I started just setting the phone down and started, you know, turning off the music or turning off the podcast or the audio book when I'm driving and just have moments of calm, moments of quiet. And it's invaluable. It's not glamorous. It's not exciting. It's not something you can show off about. But it's invaluable. Be still and know that I am God. Just pause. Yes, there's crazy stuff. Yes, there's stuff vying for your attention. Yes, there's things that need your attention and things you're responsible for. Be still. Take a moment. Breathe. I I don't need another podcast right now. I don't need to listen to an audiobook right now. Bob Dylan had a new album quite this week. We'll listen to that later on. That is a very real life example I just used. <laughs> but just calm. Sense of peace. Sense of quiet. It's not glamorous. I'll even say it's not something I'm good at. I'm naturally a chatterbox that's looking for exciting stuff to do. But it's important. Of the six postures or expressions that are presented today hopefully it's obvious that the goal isn't to simply pick our favorite and then decide that that is going to be our posture of worship it's also not that people should feel obliged to perform an act of worship to satisfy the people around them in church and hopefully you consider how you're expressing your worship both privately and together as a church if our worship includes physical expressions and postures including kneeling and bowing raising of hands if need be, laying flat out to express our desperation, lifting our hands in surrender, dancing, being still, hopefully, it will represent and reinforce what's happening internally. Hopefully, what's happening in our heart as we go through worship and we express our worship, where we have physical postures of worship expressed, that what's happening in our heart is that we are being submitted, that we're surrendering, that we are desperate for Him, and yet we do have a sense of hope that we can have joy, that we can be refreshed. Hopefully, that is the reality that you and I will experience. A lot of what we talked about is our physical posture representing what's happening internally, but I also want to remember that our physical posture reinforces what's going on in our heart. It builds what's happening in our heart. To have a heart that is submitted or hopeful or surrendered or joyful or a heart that is refreshed, a significant part of the answer to have those things is found in worshiping. I also believe that the physical posture of worship helps to be submitted rather than being rebellious, self-reliant, or stubborn. To be surrendered instead of proud and arrogant. To be desperate instead of looking for answers anywhere we can find them. To be hopeful instead of hopeless, overwhelmed, and defeated. To be joyful instead of filled with sorrow, shame, and regret. To be refreshed instead of worn out, tired and busy. Expressing worship is an important factor in correcting and addressing these areas. Now, if you're from a church tradition that discourages postures of worship or you've never expressed yourself in the ways that I outlined today, maybe this is a weekend to embrace that. I promise no one's handing out letter grades to who sufficiently does or does not worship, but I do want us to be a church that's driven by a strong worship culture. You know, we're going to take a few moments as we pause we reflect the message of Jesus the goodness of God we're going to take communion together we're going to take communion and then we're going to go into a time of worship and the team is going to lead us so if you didn't get your communion elements as you came in today I hope you have a moment to go and uh, speak to one of the ushers they'd be happy to get that for you but a few weeks ago, as I mentioned earlier, we had a friend of ours come up from New Jersey, um, and our friend Abby shared a sermon on intimacy and communion. She spent a few minutes framing communion in the whole context of worship. And I wanted to share that clip with you today, and following that, Pastor Annie's going to come, and she's going to help lead us through communion and then introduce us to a time of worship. So, why don't we go ahead? Let's turn our attention to the screen and let's watch.
0: Communion is worship that joins our lives to Christ's life. It was never meant to be an empty ritual. Normally, when we take communion at church, we're handed a cup that has the elements of communion. For us, this is a symbol that represents the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. For some of us, communion is what we do every month or so after song two in the worship set. We read we take, we might remember, we move on. But I wanna offer you a different picture that I pray helps you to honor this moment in a new way from here on out. So the next time you as a church do communion together, hopefully this is something that you bring to mind. I'm a big history nerd, so I'm gonna bring you back 1400 years or so. First, communion had been celebrated by Levitical priests for more than 1400 years before Jesus was born. Without knowing why, what the symbols meant, or who their Messiah would be. The priests served communion day after day for centuries in obedience. And I wonder what it was like when we read in the gospels for the disciples to be sitting there at the table as Jesus unveiled the symbols of the tabernacle for the first time in history. What was it like for the disciples to see Jesus break the bread and hear this is my body which I've given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. All these years, the priests had been breaking bread and eating it, thinking that it was called the bread of presence because it was in God's presence, but it was really called the bread of presence because it represented the way into God's presence through the broken body of Jesus. What about when Jesus handed them the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you? 1400 years of religious duty and one night Jesus sat down with his friends his disciples and explained its meaning suddenly once was a dead religion came to life when Jesus handed them the cups and the bread he wasn't just teaching them the meanings behind the symbols of these ancient rituals that they've always done he was leading them into worship he was teaching the disciples how to have relationship with his father. Intimacy ministers to the heart of God. When we are face to face with a God who prizes relationship with his people so much that he's willing to break his only son to do it, you must make a decision about it. Or in the words of one of my other pastors, Tom J.J. Wood, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, then the only logical response is to follow him with everything. And the natural response will be worship.